You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of the opening plenary address, which was given by Dr. David Edwards from University College Cork. His paper was entitled The Other History of the Tudor Conquest, Martial Law in 16th Century Ireland. I had intended to get back to martial law uh, in earnest um, this year, but the Boyle project that I've been doing for the last four or five years keeps growing. Um, but we are getting close to finishing the second book, which then, as far as I'm concerned for the moment, I can shelve that project and get back to what I really want to write, which is a monograph study of martial law and garrison government in Ireland from 1547 to 1641. And basically, over the years, I've become aware that there's... Lurking behind martial law and lurking behind all the forts and garrisons that are established by the Tudors and the early Stuarts in Ireland... There is an alternative model of how uh, Ireland was governed um, from the reign of Henry VIII through to the 1641 uh, rising. And it's a model that hasn't really been fully grasped in the historiography. And that's largely what I'm trying to do with this prospective book on martial law and garrison government. Um, So just to forewarn you, (laughs) I intend to load you with more stuff on martial law in the next few years. And this is a kind of a warm-up. It's me basically reminding myself um, sort of where I was getting to um, with the Elizabeth, this late 16th century uh, sort, of, uh, sort of picture. And, of course, since I... My main stuff on martial law was published in the 1990s, late 1990s, 97 and 99, and then there have been a couple of articles since, one on the flight of the Earls in a book edited by uh, Marion Lyons and Tom O'Connor, um, but I haven't done a lot of work on martial law for the last, literally almost 10 years. It's amazing that time actually catches up with you, but about 10 years, I haven't really seriously looked at it because um, I wanted to get other projects out of the way. Uh, so here I am, still getting other projects out of the way. Anyway, let's get on with it. In terms of the Tudor conquest, uh, in, in its place in the historiography, um, as people generally perceive or understand the Tudor conquest of Ireland, um, it, it is understood to have been a lengthy series of wars uh, conducted by crown forces against local Irish rebel lords, Gaelic-Irish lords, and also Anglo-Irish lords. Uh, and these wars spans the reign of Henry VIII, really from the 1530s, right through to the death of Elizabeth I in 1603. These wars um, often coincided with uh, the threat of foreign intervention, the the, uh, threat of foreign invasions. There were papal and Scottish, uh, French and imperial uh, designs, or at least discussions of invasions and interferences in Ireland during the 1530s, which greatly animated Henry VIII and his advisors. 
Later again, in the 1540s and 1550s, the French Valois monarchy uh, under Henri II had uh, actively engaged in trying to destabilise English power in Ireland. And then, of course, when you get to the 1570s and you have this growing and then subsequently constant fear and threat of a Spanish and papal, and, and Spanish and papal and Italian uh, invasion from the 1570s right through to the early 1600s. And it's against that backdrop that the wars and so on occur, this Tudor conquest of Ireland occurs. Now, historians in generally talking about the Tudor conquest of Ireland, and I, uh, I must here uh, basically, uh, basically pay tribute to James O'Neill's brilliant book, brilliant book, on the Nine Years' War, which came out just, uh, I think, a year and a half ago or so, and it's now in paperback, and I urge everybody to buy a copy. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, it's a new, it's had a new benchmark for the study of war in 16th century uh, Ireland, but also in terms of actually understanding what actually happened during the Nine Years' War at the end of the 16th century. It is absolutely essential reading. Okay, compliment made. Back to the point. Historians have mainly focused on the big um, showdowns, the big confrontations. The Kildare Rebellion, 1534-5, the, the war around that. The wars against Shane O'Neill in Ulster, 1557 through to his death in 1567. A ten years war, if you will. Um, the Desmond and Baltinglass Rebellions, 1579 through to 1583. And of course, the Tyrone Rebellion after 1594. Um, an idea had emerged when I was an undergraduate and also as a postgraduate and so on, what was becoming the dominant, the orthodox voice and so on about the Tudor conquest was to talk about the Tudor conquest in parentheses, the Tudor conquest of Ireland, that it was being seriously questioned by historians and quite rightly have been questioned by historians. Going back to state papers and discussion papers and so on uh, at Whitehall, to try and find evidence for what a nationalist uh, sort of perception of the Tudor period as being one of remorseless, endless slaughter conducted year on year by the Tudor uh, forces and so on. Historians in the 1970s and so on threw that out and they're going back to the Tudor sources and they say, well, there isn't actually evidence in the state papers for something like that. And that the wars were actually intermittent, and again, focusing mainly on those big wars, the 1534 to 5, the 1560s wars, the early 1580s wars, and then the Nine Years' War at the end of the uh, century, creates an impression of intermittency. Um, They'd emphasised that there was a stop-start nature to the Tudor military conquest of Ireland. It was non-continuous. Uh, there was no single conquest policy, we were told, no single document that enunciated the conquest of Ireland from Whitehall. Um, that instead there was a reform policy about negotiation, persuasion, growing courts, legal institutions, uh, building a form of consensus, albeit a, a, a largely one-sided consensus, with the English government telling Irish lords what to do and how to behave. But nonetheless, it wasn't about killing one. And, of course, something all historians agreed upon then and still agree upon now is that the Tudors were parsimonious. They didn't like spending money, so they didn't spend money on a Tudor conquest of Ireland. Where is it in the account books? You can't actually see it there. You see, there wasn't this long, continuous, uh, basically, uh, sort of policy of conquest in pounds, shillings and pence. Military policy, instead, we were told, was reactive. Uh, military policy was accidental, the accidental conquest of Ireland. 
Historians don't necessarily think that way now. There's been a lot of work done over the last 20, 25 years. There's a new consensus emerging. Um, I'm going to embarrass you now, David. There's uh, another book that I would strongly urge you all to read. It's David Heffernan's new one on Tudor policy in Ireland, where he deals with this whole idea of reform policy and what it meant. And, of course, Stephen would agree with this as well. Reform was frequently military and political. It was about persuasion, sometimes rather heavy-handed persuasion, and it was about killing. It was both. Reform and conquest are often one and the same thing. Yeah? Often one the, 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 the same thing. So instead of talking about a reform policy against a conquest policy, they are actually the same thing. And that's where most historians, I think, are now parked. That's where most of us now actually base our ideas. And, of course, the reform policy shared the same objective as a military conquest, in that it's about the subjugation, albeit through political means and legalistic means, the subjugation of Ireland and the anglicisation of Ireland. And they're just... It's a kind of twin-track approach. The sword and discussion. Bullying. And so on. And something historians now agree about, I think, as well, is the militarisation of the government in Ireland, the increasing militarisation of the government in Ireland. 19, or 1534 marks a particular watershed in Irish history, as, as uh, Stephen Ellis has uh, pointed out. That's when a standing army, what we call the English garrison of Ireland, is created in 1534 in response to the Kildare Rebellion, and it doesn't actually go away until 1922. So that's rather an important moment in, in, in basically any sort of uh, outline of Irish history. What about martial law? Where does martial law fit in? Well, I do think, and I still think, martial law is a key uh, factor in understanding how the conquest, the Tudor conquest, really happened. What actually happened in the country. It's the other history, if you will, of the Tudor conquest of Ireland. It isn't just about big showpiece confrontations against, between the Crown's forces and great rebels. It's about the stuff that goes on in between. And that tends to go on, actually, most of the time. Once martial law becomes systematic, we'll come to that in a minute, it helps us to plug these chronological gaps that previously had confused historians about a stop-start conquest of Ireland. If you follow martial law, you realise there's a lot less stopping than we once assumed. There's a lot more continuity than we once assumed. It's just on a local level and on a smaller scale, but it's still there. Um, it also captures the geographical spread of English power across the 16th century, where if you follow martial law commissioners, you are following... And the ambitions, and the territorially defined ambitions of the Tudor state, and then as those martial law commissioners embed themselves and become part of the, and parcel of the government of Ireland, the presence of English officials, military officials in Ireland and so on, they help to show the geographical reach of the state and the military reach of the state. Um, it also, by following martial law, key thing here is it tends to... Um, <clears throat> negate uh, the previous emphasis on parsimony. The fact that the Tudors didn't spend money on war, big wars in Ireland, big wars cost lots of money. The fact that the Tudors don't spend big, basically big money until they absolutely have to, there's no, there's no need to actually dispute that. With martial law, they didn't need to. It paid for itself. 
And also, the other thing is, is that although the objective, the declared objective of much of the reform policy of the Tudors and indeed of the early Stuarts is to anglicise Ireland and make Ireland like England, they anglicise Ireland and make Ireland not like England. They make it something very different because it's a government that's led by martial law. Okay, I'll come back to martial law very soon. But first I want to step back and just have a look at the a sort of bigger setting, if you will, for martial law and the imposition of martial law across the country. And it's to do with vice-regal government. Now, some historians would, would uh, quibble over my use of the term viceroy uh, and so on. Well, I think once Ireland declared a kingdom in 1541, the head of the government is effectively in, in, in place of the king or queen is a viceroy. So that's why I use viceroy. It makes sense. Also, it explains why the viceroys of Ireland Exercise royal prerogative. Prerogative is a way for them to avoid the law, legal constraints, and all the rest of it, and to deal with Irish crises, problems, opponents, enemies, impose their will effectively through royal prerogative, the exercise of royal prerogative. And every viceroy, every head of the government from 1541 onwards uh, was entitled to make up policy themselves in response to need, in response to necessity. Martial law is a prerogative power. It's vested in the monarchy. And in Ireland, it's vested in the representative of the monarchy, the Lord Deputy or Chief Governor or Lord Lieutenant, the Viceroy. In terms of martial law in Ireland and martial law in England, a third book I'm going to recommend you to read is came out recently by James Collins, and it's called Martial Law and English Laws. It's 1500, so 1500s to 1700s, and it was published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. Um, I reviewed it for American Historical Review uh, last year. It's a brilliant book. And it did something I could not do. It, it, it went into the legal history, the dense legal history of the monarchy and parliament and state and so on in medieval England and how martial law emerging as we recognise it in the 1490s under the Tudors. Before that, uh, all kings, all governments had had the right to respond to rebellion by any means, whatever, martial law was invoked to put down rebels, etc., etc. There were rules about the use of martial law in England, very, very strict rules, in fact, and the Tudors, being the Tudors, wriggle around those strict rules and stretch them as far as they can, uh, and Collins is brilliant on that, basically on that process. But there were, there were very real constraints, because Parliament in England often does act as a check on the monarchy, and, of course, you have statute law and the importance thereof. But in Ireland, a lot of those constraints do not apply. We can come back and talk about that later. I'm just going to kick on. To understand martial law in Ireland, um, it's often referred to, or sometimes referred to, by the more literary Elizabethan um, policy advisors and so on as Mr. Marshall. And it's always invoked in a positive way as, as this, the, the solution to all of Ireland's problems is to bring back Mr. Marshall, to set, set forth Mr. Marshall, martial law. Martial law was alluring to those charged with the very difficult task of governing Ireland from Dublin Castle. 
on a shoestring budget, answering to monarchs who were not easily satisfied and did not accept um, that their governors in Dublin Castle were doing everything to their best of their ability. Martial law is an emergency measure, um, but more to the point, the ability to execute people summarily, uh, without trial, uh, to forfeit goods and possessions and so on, all of this done without trial, arbitrarily, that's what martial law is at the end of the day about. Martial law is flexible. It's your flexible friend if you are the governor in Dublin Castle. It is not enshrined in or constrained by statute law. It is based in the royal prerogative. A viceroy, a governor, one of these guys, Gray, St. Ledger, Brabazon, Bellingham, Brian, Croft, particularly Sussex, can issue martial law commissions because they choose to. It's part of their prerogative powers. Um, it could be um, it could be moulded by a sense of emergency, or simply by a sense of necessity. Something the viceroy wants to see done. Some people that the viceroy wants to see punished. A territory that the viceroy wants to see subjugated and brought to book. Moreover, in Ireland, it deviates from the practice of martial law in England. Um, a, a very distinct form of martial law emerges in Ireland under this man, in the 1550s. Preemptive. Martial law, as we usually understand it, is an emergency measure invoked against rebels in time of rebellion. Well, from 1556 in Ireland, martial law is invoked against people who might rebel. That's a whole different concept. And that is the way in which many of the commissions, if you read them, they're published in the Fiends, which brought out, they were republished in 1994. If you read the terms of, of, the, uh, of the, the grants of martial law commissions, the actual powers, the terminology of these, you realise that the commissioners who are receiving martial law authority are being empowered to go out and kill people on suspicion that they might be bad people on suspicion that they might do something you don't like, on suspicion that it's something that the government doesn't approve of. It is pre-emptive. And that is extraordinary. That doesn't exist in England. Interestingly, the work of James Collins shows that the workings, the uh, experience of pre-emptive use of martial law in Ireland was in the late 1580s introduced in England against the unemployed. Going through the, the martial law commissions as well, the terminology, the elastic language, your flexible friend. Um, it's hardly, a martial law commission is hardly ever time limited. In other words, if it was to be time limited, from this day forth until 12 months hence, you have the authority to go out into a certain territory and kill whoever you feel you have to kill, and then in 12 months hence, it stops. No, 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 it's just issued to you. So it, it, it lingers. And what you get is a multiplicity of martial law commissioners. As new commissions are being issued, you still have the old ones in effect. So you end up with many, dozens and then scores and then ultimately hundreds of martial law commissions all in action at the same time in the country. Martial law commissions in England tend to be time-specific. They tend to be for a particular period of time, during particular unrest, then it stops. In Ireland, no, it's not during unrest. It's just issued. It's very, very different again. Martial law commissions, if you look at them again, they also tend to be geographically hazy. They might identify a certain lordship, but they often talk about the borders thereof. 
And that can go as far as the martial law commissioner decides it needs to go. It also, it targets a general, its targets are generalized. The people against which martial law commissions are issued are generalized. They're unspecified. So we have talks of not specific rebels, but rebels and outlaws, enemies, opponents of Her Majesty, um, male factors, and my personal favorite, wrongdoers. So you can be executed for being a wrongdoer. I wouldn't have lasted long. <laughs> they sometimes do target specific social groups in Ireland. The bards and rhymers, the Gaelic bards and rhymers, who extol the martial prowess, the independence of the Irish lords and so on, uh, and, uh, and basically their ability to stand up for their territories against all comers, including the Crown of England. They are uh, specifically targeted by Sydney in 1566 and by Pelham, in 1580 and by Greater Wilton in 1581 to be removed from the landscape. We don't know exactly how many uh, bards were killed. We do know that some were. We have the names of some uh, basic bards who were executed during those years, who disappeared, who, who were basically subsequently mentioned in the lists of the dead or, or so on. Jesters, they're also to be executed, travelling jesters and so on often mentally handicapped, but they're seen as being uh, uncontrolled elements who rove across territories and across boundaries and so on, irrespective of the rule of law, and they spread rumour and sedition. They are causes of unrest. All wanderers, um, all beggars are to be treated this way. Um, in a way, martial law has been used in Ireland, and especially as you get further and further away from Dublin, and the pale and the urbanised world of the pale into the agricultural and pastoral world of Ireland, the population of Ireland, you have to remember, is mobile. It's often following the cattle up, down, uh, basically following grasslands and so on. There are, there's a growing number of measures being taken by the government to try and control and curb this, and martial law is used to, to actually curb pastoralism. Uh, at particular periods. That again breaks out in the early 17th century. Money limits are placed on um, the use of martial law. In other words, uh, a martial law commissioner, in many of the commissions that are issued, literally dozens of commissions are issued in 1562, 63, 64, something like 50 or 60 of uh, uh, martial law commissions issued then, um, and they specify that the, the, the martial law commissioners can kill anyone without trial who has less than 40 shillings movable goods in possession. They were 40 shilling freeholders. Um, so generally the poor and those who are only just getting by who have less than 40 shillings in movable goods, they are fair game. But people who have property and are freeholders and therefore have rights to vote in local elections and things like that, they can't be killed. That's in 1562, 63, 64. In 1564, and again in 1567, you have a new one saying, oh, you can kill anyone up to five pounds worth of goods and permission, which means you can kill people with property. They don't have much property, but you can kill them. By 1569, it becomes 20 pounds, which means you can basically kill the vast majority of the Irish population, no questions asked, because most people don't own more than 20 pounds worth of movable goods and possessions and so on. 
So there's a really serious um, edge to an awful lot of this. Now, the key part as well about why martial law is so um, attractive to governors and to officers, office holders in Ireland is this whole thing about parsimony, the Tudor parsimony. It's affordability. The Tudors could afford to issue martial law commissions. It didn't cost them anything. Uh, martial law paid for itself. Again, if you read the terms of the martial law commissions in the Theans, you realise that the martial law commissioner is entitled to one-third of the removable goods and possessions of anyone he kills. Um, so it's almost like an inducement to go out and kill a lot of people, then you'll get rich. And that is the way it seems to be understood by many of those who queue up literally outside Sussex's uh, apartments in Dublin Castle and later on Sydney and Fitzwilliam seeking commissions of martial law where they can go out and they can make some money for themselves. They can, they can carve out a presence for themselves in various territories. Uh, they can live off the country uh, by killing uh, large numbers of the country uh, and so on. And the crucial thing about martial law this is not said in the commissions. This is just the political reality. Is that I've gone through, I don't know many, how many thousand state papers from the Elizabethan period, trying to find evidence of any martial law commissioner being held accountable for when he killed people he wasn't supposed to kill. And, and there were numerous complaints. We'll come back to that later. Numerous complaints against them. Um, there's one or two who were actually brought to book in Castle Chamber in the 1580s when Elizabeth gets quite shirty about the use of martial law in Ireland. But other than that, uh, there's nothing. And there are, there's big pressure in the 1560s for all of Sussex's gang to be prosecuted. And uh, Fitzwilliam as Lord Justice, who's also Sussex's guy, makes sure that that inquiry goes nowhere fast. Likewise, in the 1580s, James Croft, who at that stage was a, a major privy councillor in England, had been urging a thorough investigation into the abuse of martial law in Ireland since Her Majesty's reign began in 1558. And there are orders issued for those inquiries in 1588 and 1589. And there are some records in the National Archives among the Ferguson manuscripts showing that um, people were being sent questions uh, to, uh, to set up a commission of inquiry, but it never actually happened. It never happened. So therefore, martial law was effectively unaccountable. At the reign of in the reign of James I, when the king wanted to make Ireland pay for itself as quickly as possible, and he, was, and he urged his officials in Ireland to come up with new ways of generating revenue, or in fact of recovering old revenues that hadn't been paid, there was a... a, a there were two specific orders issued to investigate the use of martial law during the reign of my predecessor, uh, I see Queen Elizabeth and so on. And what they found in six, around 1610 or 1611 was that there wasn't a single account in the Exchequer of any martial law revenues from the entire reign of Elizabeth I. So in other words, the martial law commissioners went out, killed, took everything, and never gave an account. It was unaccountable, literally. Okay. It also made a lot of officials fairly wealthy. You discover captains buying property and so on. And on the salaries they're getting officially from the government, they wouldn't have been doing that. So they're getting money from somewhere else. The other thing about martial law is it's linked into the garrison strategy. This is a big part of, um, of the, 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 the Tudor military policy in Ireland from 1546, 1547 onwards, was a commitment to build the garrison network. 
and it's usually associated with um, Lord Protector Thomas Seymour, uh, Duke of Somerset, who's the protector of the young King Edward VI from 1547 until he's overthrown in a palace coup in 1549. Protector Somerset brought a garrison strategy to Scotland. He's really famous for that. But he also signed off on expanding the garrison network in Ireland. Because it didn't end with his overthrow in 1549. It carries on. And it becomes a standard thing that the Crown seeks to take physical, actual possession of territories by establishing a network of forts, of newly built forts, or taking over old forts and rebuilding them and so on, and putting garrisons or wards in them. But the martial law commissions follow the garrison system. And martial law, uh, basically garrison commanders nearly all receive, and in fact by the 1580s, all garrison commanders in Ireland can be shown to possess martial law, at least one commission of martial law. Some of them have several, have actually had several of them. To, 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 as, their, as, their, as their realms of activity expanded, they looked for new, uh, basically, MLCs, new martial law commissions, and so on. Um, so martial law empowered them to... It gave them a freedom of action. They could go out and literally take more land, impose the power of their garrison point at sword point, and kill any opponents and so on. And martial law is the way. But they're often using this before anyone is in rebellion. They're doing it by threat. And if anyone opposes them, they're killed. And people sometimes are killed before there's any protest put up at all. Shock tactics are often used, ad terrorum, etc. Now, all of this is recognised as being very provocative. And Mary I, who became queen in 1553, Mary Tudor, um, took action um, in 1556 to have martial law abandoned in Ireland. Um, and she said it was only to be used against rebels in time of, of like rebellion only, as in England. That was in April 1556. In November 1556, there was a meeting of the Viceroy, the Earl of Sussex, and the Irish Council in Dublin Castle, and they decided to issue commissions that weren't called martial law commissions, but when you read the terms, they are martial law commissions. So it carried on anyway. Now, of course, Sussex was fighting um, a number of wars, multi-theatre government. Uh, he's, he's, he's determined to take military control of larger parts of Ireland in the middle of the 1550s because of a perceived, a genuine threat of a French invasion and a perceived um, fear of, a, of, of more Scottish involvement in Ulster, uh, and, and so on. He needs to take emergency measures, but he's also determined to advance the reformation of Leinster by imposing military power in Wicklow and in parts of Wexford and Carlow, and of course in the Midlands, in Leash and Offaly, to recover the first plantation, which was then in crisis. Uh, he also goes in, uh, basically across the Shannon, he goes into uh, Munster and so on, and he fights four and five wars, different co- campaigns, in the course of a year, if you follow um, him, him in the state papers. And martial law for him becomes something he cannot get by without. It's a way of boosting the size of his armies. His armies actually aren't large enough to take on the numbers of fights that he decides are necessary. So he needs to actually bring in extra people. And so you have... Uh, basically martial law commissions, sorry, I call them MLCs, martial law commissions being issued to people who who aren't actually formal captains on the establishment. They're just captains by hire 
from Sussex, and they get martial law power as well, and that helps to pay them. Under Sussex, martial law spreads through Dublin, Mead, Kildare, Louth, up into what is Antrim and down, into the borders of Ulster. Uh, Leash and Offaly is constantly covered in a blanket of it, as are many of the surrounding Gaelic territories of Leash and Offaly in the Midlands. Likewise, Wicklow, what is now Wicklow, and Carlow, and, and basically North Wexford and so on. But it's under his successor, Sir Henry Sidney, Sidney had been Lord Treasurer and then uh, Lord Justice or Acting Governor when uh, Sussex was away in the late 1550s. And when he was made Lord Justice, I found a letter in the British Library by Sidney. When he's made Lord Justice in 1558, uh, he writes to the Council of London saying his demands to be Lord Justice to actually um, fill in for... He demands various things. Number one on his list of demands in this manuscript in the British Library, in the additional manuscripts, I think it's 4767, I need unrestricted use of martial law. This is how he's going to run the country. He's going to make it pay for itself by martial law commissions. He comes in as governor in 1565, and it's under Sidney and then Fitzwilliam that martial law truly goes nationwide. And every county that is a county um, is affected by martial law by 1569, and many territories that haven't yet been shired, turned into counties, are also being brought into the net, and so on. As I, as I indicated earlier on, there is a great deal of controversy around martial law, for obvious reasons. It becomes something that becomes almost a supplement to the army. You have a captain and his soldiers, um, and the captain will also seek... And he gets paid as a captain, he gets an official salary, and he decides how much the soldiers actually get paid out of the salary that he's given by the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the uh, sort of treasurer in, uh, in like Dublin. Um, but they also seek martial law commissions, because it's, it's kind of like an added, it's a uh, perk of military service in Ireland. And so you find, as well as uh, soldiers who aren't actually part of the official, the established army, and I'll come back to this point in a minute, um, getting martial law commissions and then having small bands of followers and so on, you also get the, the official captains who are on the establishment who are being paid for with an official salary uh, from London through Dublin and so on, who also get martial law commissions uh, simply to boost their, 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 their self-enrichment uh, sort of potential. Uh, and this becomes a feature um, from the 15, late 1550s onwards. You can track it. And then you can also track some of these martial law commissioners, as I said, starting to build up private estates and so on. They're, they're, they're becoming quite wealthy, a lot of them. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Enough to create a sort of cult of martial law among the army officers and among those who serve mil- um, sort of militarily. Note my... Um, sort of contrast there, the army officers and those who serve militarily um, in Ireland. Um, martial law is a way to get things done. It's a way to also get rich. It's a way to make money. A lot of what the martial law commissioners do involves killing. It does involve an escalation of violence, to go back to that, uh, and so on. There's no doubt about it. That when a martial law commissioner or a captain with a martial law commission first turns up in a territory, you're going to soon get reports of violence and killings and, 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 and cattle raids and so on, basically thrown his weight around to establish his presence among the Irish lords who expect nothing else. They, that's how they 
also negotiate with each other uh, through throwing their weight around, taking hostages, burning land, and so on. But the levels of killings that are being committed by the Crown side uh, are, are very much marked. But it's not just about killing, because if it was, it wouldn't be worth a lot of money, because everybody would be dead. It's about shakedown. If you've got the, the ability to go into a territory and terrorise the general population and say, don't obey his orders anymore or I'll kill you. And anyway, just to make sure you're being good, you will now pay me one-fifth of your cattle or one-fifth of your sheep or whatever it is. That's how they establish them themselves. And there's a kind of negotiated new political arrangement. In a way, they're behaving like traditional Irish warlords taking tribute from the general population, and it's up to other people to stop them. And martial law creates that. How English is that? It's more like the Irish lords than it is like in England. So there's something different emerging here. In the name of a policy of anglicisation, in the name of a policy of reform. So, it's, yeah, shakedown tends to happen. Now, it is, of course, and it engenders a huge amount controversy. It's controversial and engendered controversy. And we have regular uh, complaints in the early 1560s, late 1550s and early 1560s. There's a tranche of complaints about Sussex and about some of his captains, his leading officers and so on, and atrocities that they were supposed to have um, um, committed, the killing of, of um, prisoners in cold blood, the annihilation of entire villages without warning, and, and so on. But mo most of the complaints are not about killing, because most of the complaints stem from the pale and the frontiers of the pale. They're about shakedown. They're about protection rackets. That's what most of the complaints are actually about. And that pattern is repeated, is replicated, um, as martial law spreads across the country. Um, it's a kind of time bomb. If you study uh, the origins of the Desmond Rebellion in the 1570s and you follow not just the relationship between Desmond and the governors, uh, Fitzwilliam and Drury, yeah, but if you actually follow what sort of military policies, what sort of officers, what sort of personnel are turning up in Munster, in the 1570s, what sort of powers did they have and what did they do? You discover that as Desmond is trying desperately to negotiate his return to his territories in the mid and late 1570s, his restoration of his own authority inside his own territories, martial law commissioners, one of the most notorious being Henry Devils, known to the Irish as Henry Devil, Henry Devils is out killing adherents of Desmond and of, De and of basically a Desmond's brothers. Um, Desmond tries to, he desperately tries not to rebel. He eventually calls all of his military supporters to leave County Waterford, County Tipperary, and County Cork to, take, to seek protection within his liberty of Kerry where English officials are not able to operate with the same level of freedom. Um, and so he's able to actually protect his soldiers. But that means he actually gives up protecting his outlying lands in Waterford and Tipperary Court in order to get away from Henry Davils, to get away from um, Apsley, to get away from... There's three or four more down on the head at the moment. Uh, 
basically give me a few minutes and I can tell you who they are. But there's a, there's a, he's trying to get away from the Marshall Law Commissioners. Um, in 1579, after his, his uh, brother, uh, John of Desmond, had gone into rebellion, could take it no more, because most of John's soldiers had been killed by Donald's. Um, that's why Davos is killed in Tralee in 1579. It's revenge for what Davos had been doing in Waterford and Cork to John of Desmond's people. Um, John goes into rebellion in 1579, in, in, in the early autumn of 1579, and eventually the Earl follows him into rebellion. But not before Nicholas Malby had crossed the frontier from the Shannon into Munster as the new military commissioner uh, pending the appointment of a new Lord President. And he goes after Desmond by martial law. And there are six or seven villages that he just eradicates in the autumn of 1579. Desmond's unable to protect his people. Desmond is effectively emasculated. Desmond, in the end, rebels out of desperation. And martial law is a key element in understanding that story. It wasn't that Desmond was stupid or dim-witted or so on as some of his um, enemies in, in uh, Dublin and London indicated, he literally had no choice. He literally had no choice. The complaint, Elizabeth was considering, she was alarmed by the fact that Desmond seemed to be on the brink of rebellion in 1579, and she actually sent orders to Dublin authorising a commission of inquiry into the behaviour of Davos and other martial law commissioners in Munster. But by then, by the time her orders reached Dublin, Desmond was in rebellion. It was too late. It's typical of Elizabeth, she acts too late, and so on. Um, so again, martial law is instrumental in telling the story of, of the Desmond Rebellion. The complaints themselves do eventually bear fruit. So James Croft, the former governor who had the law in the early 1550s, in the 1580s he becomes its most outspoken and most effective critic because he's a member of the Privy Council in London and an old Irish hand. And as soon as Sussex dies in 1583, Croft pops up on the, on, on the council and demands political change in Ireland and the abandonment of martial law. And by 1585, martial law is curtailed. And it's only to be used against rebels in time of like, basically rebellion only. And then eventually in 1591, a year after Croft's death, it is actually abandoned by Elizabeth I to be overtaken by the new emergency the impending Spanish invasion and the stirrings of the major rebellion in Austria and so on. And gradually, in the course of the 1590s, the early phase of the 94, martial law is reintroduced, albeit on more strictly <coughs> defined terms than it previously obtained initially. 1597, 1598, 1599. But after Essex leaves Ireland in 1599, the martial law of the 1560s and 70s, preemptive, unrestrained martial law, is let loose again. And that becomes the version that largely obtains in parts of Ireland early in the reign of James I. Okay. Very, very briefly. I think one of the reasons, one of the things that's most fascinating about the role of martial law in understanding the military history, the political history, of late 16th century Ireland is that the type of conquest that it allows us to see. It's not just conquest of big crown armies confronting big enemies of the crown, major rebels and so on. It's a multiplicity of conflicts. 
And a lot of the time, it's about the privatization of military power, the privatization of killing, the subcontracting of conquest. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.